Well, this morning you're in for a special treat. Uh, a few years ago, we started this off as Super Summer and just bringing some guest speakers during the summer, just something different, fresh voice, uh, just time for me to be preached at, which I desperately need. And so uh, we've been doing this for a couple of years and over and over each year, uh, people ask me, did you schedule Dr. Smith this year? Did you schedule Dr. Smith this year? And uh, we did. We were able to get on his calendar this year. And so, uh, so enjoying the first service, he's just, as usual, hit a home run, blessed me and challenged me. And so would you welcome back one of our favorites here at Liberty Heights, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. Thank you, brother, my friend. What a blessing it is to be back home. I say that with sincerity and I say that with great jubilation. You are a part of me. I love you and you can't do a thing about that. Amen. Thank you, uh, Pastor Cunningham, once again, for uh, your love for me, for your invitation. I do not take this lightly. Whenever I'm able to come to Liberty Heights to worship, that's why I come to worship. Preaching is an act of worship. Everyone who is here is here not as a viewer or a spectator, but you're here as a participant in worship. You're getting in redemptive rhythm. You're in a dress rehearsal for what eternity will be about. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. So it's great uh, to be back. It's good to be here. It's wonderful to see how the Lord is extending your territory, broadening your coasts, lifting you and elevating you so that you might be a greater witness for him. That's, that's really what it's about, that we might show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness so that we can walk in his marvelous light. This morning, I, uh, during the first service, I talked about rated aura for redemption. And I didn't finish. You've known that for 16 years. I don't ever finish. I just stop. In 47 years, I've never finished a sermon celebrated 47 years of preaching this past Wednesday. So I just stopped. And today I'm just going to stop. But I want to move um, to chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, and I'm going to read verses 20 to 25. Um, I introduced our discussion this morning from Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Uh, that's the background, that's the backdrop, that's to the matrix out of which this message was developed and, and, uh, from this, and uh, out of which this message emerged. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 through 25. Hear these words from the word. Rated aura for redemption. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out all who belong to her in accordance with the oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside of the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab 
the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the spies that Joshua had sent to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now this story, if you're not careful, will lull you into sleep because you know this story. And I keep telling people that the greatest obstacle to the knowledge of the Bible is the knowledge of the Bible. What keeps us from knowing more about the Bible is what we think we already know about the Bible. And therefore, we cease to be tourists of Scripture and we become residents of Scripture. When I was uh, preaching from uh, the Billy Graham School of Evangelism in New York City, uh, in uh, this large hotel that was located right on Times Square. I never forget, I had never been on Times Square before, and I was excited about seeing places, hearing sounds that I was familiar with through the television. And um, I stepped out of the hotel, and I took a couple steps, and I looked, and I saw this building, I saw this sign, I took another couple steps, and I looked, and I saw this and that, which I had seen on television before, but I'd never seen in person. It, it took me about an hour and a half to go about one block, because I was a tourist. I was excited about seeing that, which I was not familiar with. However, people who live there, it took them just a minute or two to walk, because they had seen it all before, and they just walk very quickly with an accelerated gait and rhythm because they were residents. They were not tourists. It's very possible that you and I can visit this scripture so that what we know of it prevents us from really knowing it in a deeper way. We become residents of it rather than, stu rather than tourists. The attraction is gone. The spectacular is gone. I hope that we will hear this passage anew today. I hope that we will assume a posture of second naivete, become a child for the second time, and crawl up into the cranium of Yahweh, God, and let him tell us the story in a fresh way one more time. I hope that the common will become uncommon. And I hope that the familiar will become unfamiliar. And I hope that the mundane will become majestic. And I hope that the simple will become stupendous as we revisit familiar territory and discover that we have never been this way before. James A. Sanders, who taught Old Testament interpretation for many years at Union Theological Seminary and other places, has said that biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. Biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. In other words, everybody in the Bible is flawed. No one is intended to be a role model for us. All have sinned and come short 
of the glory of God. Miss the mark. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. The last time I checked it, all men all. And therefore, biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but mirrors for identity, so that we can see ourselves in their lives. I am looking at a congregation of ex-Rahabs. Does that bother you that I called you an ex-prostitute? I'm not talking about prostitution. Ultimately, I'm talking about sin. And you can't spell sin without putting an I in the middle. S-I-N. And God doesn't have a Richter scale that forms a hierarchy when it comes to sin. It's not that, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm on, I only commit number one sins, number two. Sin is, sin is not just an action, it's an attitude, it's a state. It's that we are repulsive to God because our relationship is unaligned. And the only way we become righteous is that God has become what he is not, human, and yet remain who he is, God. The Word has to become flesh and dwell among us. God has to put on skin. God is God as Father without skin because He's Spirit who puts on skin and by His Spirit gets inside of our skin so that He can change our lives, change our relationship, and make us sons and daughters of the Most High God. Rahab wants us to see ourselves in her. Rahab, the madame of the best little house in Jericho. These spies are sent by Joshua from the wilderness side of the promised land to check out Jericho. And they are ascertained by the Jericho Police Department and reported to the king of Jericho who sends uh, an emissary group to interrogate Rahab. And Rahab, of course, lies and says, uh, the men came, but they have left, and if the uh, police department uh, representatives will immediately pursue these spies, they'll be able to overtake them. Of course, this is a lie, and as I said with the, to the first congregation, it's not that God used the lie. God didn't need the lie. God tra transcends our lies, our mistakes. And we must be patient with Rahab because she has faith, faith enough to say, we already know your history. We already know that your God has fought for you. Chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. We already know that God has dried up the Red Sea. We already know that God has defeated uh, the kings of the Amorites. Sihon and Og. We already know. And as a result of that, our hearts are melting. Verse number 11. And we already know that God is the God in heaven and the God on earth. That's real sovereignty. I know that we cannot talk about theology without talking about theodicy. When I talk about theology, I'm talking about God talk. When I talk about theodicy, I'm talking about the problem of evil. Why is it that God is omnipotent and has all power and yet our world is filled with tragedy 
Does it mean that God has become impotent and is no longer omnipotent? Does it mean that God has lost control? Not at all. God is on the throne. I don't like to hear people say God is still on the throne as if there's a possibility that he might not be, as if he's going to abdicate his throne. No, God is on the throne and is orchestrating everything, ruling, and looking at us as if to say, will you trust me when life goes helter-skelter? It is Carolyn James in her great work, When Life and Beliefs Collide, who reminds us, when faith is stripped to the bone and all our props and crutches are gone, things that we lean on, our knowledge of God, that he is good and that he is still on the throne, she said, that's the only thing that will keep you going. When your faith is stripped to the bone and your props, crutches are gone, health breaks down, relationships break up, financial reverses are in your life. Mm. And I can enumerate more and more. Your knowledge of God, that he is good and that he is on the throne, is the only thing that will keep you going. My hope is not built on my reputation. My hope is not built even on my family. My hope is not built on my position. My hope is not built on my health. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Because all of these things can fade away at any time. Don't trust your position. Don't trust an institution. Don't even trust yourself. Put your confidence in God. And what Rahab wants us to see is to see ourselves and to understand that there is no depth from which God cannot bring you from and no sin from which God cannot deliver you and forgive you from. Rahab is a picture of redemption. Whenever you see her name, with the exception of about one time, it's always accompanied with some dubious designation. The prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. I talked about that this morning, so I don't need to enumerate that and go back and locate that. But she can't shake it. And I think she can't shake it because God doesn't want her to shake it. She's been delivered, but God wants her and us to be reminded that he has brought us out of something so that we are former, so that we are ex. So that we are previously this. But now we're that. That's the wonderful contraction of but in the Bible. Those of us who were foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, without God, without hope in the world. But now we who are far off are made to draw nigh by the blood of the Lamb. But now. Thank God for that word. But now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Thank God for the but now. I shared with you, because you're my family, during the um, 9.30 class, 9.30 service, you can tell I'm a teacher, 
so I keep talking about class. Uh, but um, you know that on October the 30th, 2010, that our, um, our son, Tony, was murdered at his job, uh, Richie's Restaurant on Reading Road, by a young man uh, by the name of William, 17 years of age at that time. I've been asking people to pray that the letter that I wrote William would touch his heart to the point that he would be willing to write me back and put me on his visitation list so that I could see him. I wanted to let him know that I love him. I wanted to let him know that I have forgiven him. I wanted to let him know that God wants to forgive him. And as I said to a brother this morning, grace has no expiration date. Milk does and bread does. And a lot of other things do, but grace has no expiration date, never runs out at all. And I wanted to go and visit him and hug him and so forth. Well, for a couple of years, he, he never wrote me, but he finally wrote me a letter and responded. And I wanted to just read uh, excerpts, not about everything to you, uh, because God is in the business of redeeming. Dear Mr. Smith, first off, let me say that I am truly sorry for your loss. I really am. Also, I hope that this is really you that I'm writing. Because I have received a lot of threat mail from your family members and friends. So that's why I never wrote back. But today I thought that I should give it a try because I really wanted to talk to you. I just felt that it would be a waste of time to write you back. Uh, if it was another person threatening me. Well, I've been locked up now for three years, and they're the worst three years of my life. I don't think I'll make it much longer. You know, I grew up in church my whole life. I just hung with the wrong crowd on that night. I'm sorry. You probably know my pastor. Gives the pastor's name, the church, etc. Gives a couple pictures of the pastor. I have them here. Yes, this place is not for me at all, but there's a consequence for everything in life. I would write more to you, but I'm not sure this is really you or if this is someone just playing games. So I hope to hear from you very, very soon. And thank you for forgiving me. Can you keep praying for me, too? This is getting too hard for me to bear sometimes. I feel like giving up on life and closes by saying God bless God wants to redeem William William is redeemable there is nothing that anyone can do that will cancel the possibility of their redemption William is a murderer Moses was a murderer and God raised him up to be a great lawgiver and deliverer. David was a murderer. And God raised him up to be a great king and even called him a man after my own heart. And Paul gave consent or approval for the stoning of Stephen the deacon. And God made him to move from being the church's number one public enemy to become the church's number one public defender. And I want you to know that God has plans for Williams. And God has plans for you. Because real forgiveness can only be done 
through God. Forgiveness is not difficult. It's just impossible without God. It takes God working in our hearts. It takes God working in our lives. And unfortunately, those family members of mine who attend church and are believers, hurt like I am, but threatening, can take away the power of the gospel when it comes to the lives of others. I have no right to withhold forgiveness toward someone when God did not withhold forgiveness from me. Forgiveness is unconditional. I've known people who have broken bones and for 20 to 30 years they would tell me, and I've heard this all my life really, they can tell when it's going to rain because the bone will throb. Leg bone, arm bone. But the breakage didn't paralyze them. They're still mobile. They still have agility. But the throbbing is still there. I'm hurt. My heart still throbs. I miss my baby. But forgiveness has enabled me from the grace and power of God to be mobile and agile and to function without, without paralysis. And some of us are sitting here now. Oh, we've been hurt. A friend has hurt us. Someone in church has disappointed us. They've disappointed us. They betrayed our trust. A relational rift has put such deep envy and hatred in our hearts that we can't even worship with freedom. God wants to say, give it to me. I'll bear it. Give it to me. I'll share it. If there is a trouble in your life and a burden that you carry, if you give it to me, you can release it and find real freedom. Rahab, the prostitute, experiences forgiveness from the God who giveth and giveth and giveth more grace. A man went to his Catholic priest, said to the Catholic priest, doing confession, I've, confessed, I've sinned some terrible and heinous sins. Uh, my life has been a life of egregious activity. And there's some things that I've done that I'm so embarrassed about that I am hesitant to talk to you about it. And the priest said, just tell me. And he began to confess and confess and confess. And finally he came to one thing. He says, but I can't tell you this because God knows about it, but... God won't forgive me of this. I know he won't. The priest said, yes, he will. Tell me. So will you tell God when you talk to God? Uh, ask him what this sin is. And then I'll come back and talk to you about it. And if God tells you what it is, then I'll uh, confess it. Uh, appointment was made. The priest met with this man later on. Asked him. Uh, asked the man. Asked the priest. Did um, you talk to God? Yes. Uh, what sin did God tell you that I committed that uh, I was not willing to confess? The priest scratched his head and said, God said, God said, I, I forgot. Because that's what forgiveness is. God chooses 
to forget and not hold it against us. You know, this is the best news that you can have. It's better than a pay raise. It's better than a good diagnosis. People get, I'm amazed at how excited and ecstatic people get in church about stuff that are, that, that is material, temporary, etc. And when I talk about something that is, that has eternal ramifications, um, it doesn't seem to move us to vocality and move us to emotion. Not emotionalism, but emotion. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been forgiven. Now let me move on. Here is this prostitute who bargains what she does with these spies and says to them in chapter 2, I've hid, hidden you under the flats on top of the roof so that you would not be apprehended and spotted. And I've told a lie to the members of the Jericho Police Department. I sent them looking for you when you're still here. And I'm giving you direction uh, that at a certain time you're to leave here, go to the hills, stay three days. And after three days, when they've come back uh, to Jericho, you're to go to the fords of the northern part of the Jordan River, go across and report back to, Jer to Joshua and to the nation there. Now, what are you going to do for me? I scratch your back. We say that proverbially speaking. Will you scratch mine? And they said to her, that scarlet cord, that red cord, that crimson cord, if you'll put it in the window of your house, and the Bible teaches us in verse 15 that her house was built inside of the wall. It was part of the wall. That's an important statement. If you let it dangle outside of the window, since you already know that the city is already going to be taken by the people of Israel, and that everyone is going to be killed. This will provide life insurance for you, and you and your family and everyone who is inside of the house will be spared. Well, that's exactly what will take place. Notice the text teaches us that in chapter 2, in verse number, uh, verse number 7, that at night the gates were shut. That is, the doors were shut. In chapter 6 of Joshua, verse 1, the gates or the doors were shut. And here's a city where all the doors, all the gates are shut. How will the spies escape Jericho if the doors are shut? They come out, verse 15, of the window. God provides an escape for them through the window. As I said to the people this morning, and oh, what a lesson he wants to teach us. That when doors are shut, God opens windows. The only time we talk about the windows of heaven being open uh, is when we are talking about tithing in Malachi 3 and 10. Uh, bring your tithes and offering to the storehouse that they may uh, be meet in my house and prove me therewith if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing where there will not be room enough to receive. Don't you understand that God has windows for you to escape from? A man came up to me after the service and he said to me, he said, God opened a window for me to escape. The doctors told me I only had a short time to live and uh, the doors were shut. It looked real bad. Uh, but God opened up the window. And now, well over a year has passed, 
I'm still alive because God opened the windows. Have you any rivers that you think are uncrossable? Do you have any mountains that you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things that seem to be impossible, and he will do what no other power can do. Have you ever been on your bed of affliction, and the doctors have done all that they can do? God specializes in healing all manner of diseases, and he will do what no other power and no other doctor can do. Some of you are sitting here right now. You shouldn't be here, but God opened up a window. Some of your marriages shouldn't be uh, stable, but you're still together because God opened up a window. Some of your children should not have come back home and uh, should have done things that were unredeemable in terms of human society. But God has opened up a window. Some of you were not supposed to be walking. Some of you are not supposed to talk any longer. Some of you are not supposed to be living in the kind of house you live in. Some of you are not supposed to be doing as well as you're doing. But God opens up a window. And some of you were voted in high school the most likely not to succeed. But God opened up a window. And don't let anybody tell you, young people, what you cannot accomplish. Forget about that. It doesn't make any difference what side of the track you've been born on. The fact that you've been born is the only thing that matters because God is on both sides of the track. Don't try to hide behind. If I had another father, I'd be a better this. No, your father in heaven is able to help you to do whatever you need to do that will give him glory. And this church, thank God for this church. What God is trying to tell you is when doors are shut, God will open up windows when there's financial entrapment. God will open up a window when it doesn't look good, when it looks as if we're going down for the count. And it looks like people are gathering around the grave that they've already dug for the Liberty Heights Church. They've got their shovels in their hands, getting ready to throw dirt on it. But what does God do? God opens up a window. Now you don't have one service, you got two servants. And don't get comfortable with that, because you may go to three servants, because with God, never say no. Never put a period where God has put a comma. God opens windows. And he'll do it every single time. Ah, Joshua listens to these spies share the faith of Rahab who said, we know that your God is fighting for you and that Jericho is on the docket for destruction, and that this city will fall into your hands. This scarlet cord is emblematic or symbolic of the blood of Christ. I want to take the liberty to say that. Not because it's red, but because it is a symbol of Rahab and her family being Spared. Chapter 2, verse 15 says uh, that uh, the scarlet cord was let out. And chapter 6 tells us that Rahab and her family were spared when the city of Jericho was destroyed. It's, um, it's, it's an amazing picture of substitutionary atonement when it comes to Jesus. Hear the words from uh, Paul's letter in Romans 8.32. God who spared not... His own son, but gave him up for us all. Shall he not freely with him give us all things? Christ was not spared. We were. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, 
took my place. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, Isaiah 53, and with his stripes we are healed, we are made whole. Uh, this scarlet cord, this crimson cord, uh, gives us a retrospective view. Uh, it represents uh, what took place during the first Passover. Because God sent a message to Joshua who transmitted it to the heads of the tribes, who transmitted it to the heads of the clans, who transmitted it to the heads of the family, that the death angel is coming by here tonight. You to kill a lamb without blemish, without spot, without um, breakage, and to take its blood and smear it on the doorposts and lintels of the house. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will pass over your house and take the firstborn of those who live in houses where the blood has not been smeared over the doorposts and lintels. In Jericho, every house fell. Every person was destroyed except those who were inside of Rahab's house where the red crimson scarlet cord was dangling and hanging outside of the window. It's, it's a retrospective view of God passing over and sparing. But there is also a perspective view which brings us to the Lord's Supper, where Jesus would say, look, this blood represents the New Testament in my blood. You drink this wine, uh, which represents my blood, and you eat this bread, which represents my body. And uh, it's the perspective that Christ's body was broken and blood was shed that we might be saved. No, there's no power in the grape juice or in the bread. They are symbols of a reality because symbols are signs that point to a reality. And the reality is that Christ loved us enough that he was willing to become God's object of wrath so that God took out his wrath on him and we were spared as a result. You want to know why we should worship? We should worship God because we have the can't help it. We can't help but speak the things we have seen and heard, Acts 4.20, because he has done such great things for us. But there is also a prospective view because Jesus says, I will not eat any more with you until I eat with you in my Father's kingdom. I won't drink of this cup until I drink it in my Father's kingdom. That's future. And at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the church triumphant, those who are already in heaven, and the church militant like us who are still on earth, will be joined together, and the bride of Christ will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb, then we will celebrate once and for all eternity. The salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. This scarlet cord helps us look back at the Passover, helps us to look at the Lord's Supper, and helps us to look at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the future, where we will have an incessant service of worship in glory, which will be the protocol there. Uh, this woman, Rahab, is one of the great heroines of the Bible. Uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, incidentally, here is a woman, Rahab, who marries a man by the name of Salmon. Rahab and Salmon have a child, a son whose name is Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz have a son whose name is Boaz, Obed. And Obed has a son whose name is Jesse. 
And Jesse has a son whose name is David. And out of David comes Jesus. Rahab is a great-grandmother of Jesus. A defective, unworthy tool that God chooses to use. And then you say, God can't use me. I've messed up. I've disqualified myself. I can't be delivered. I made a mistake. I made a wrong turn. I've embarrassed myself. I defamed my family's name. God says, I can use you. I can get glory out of your life. Stop condemning yourself. And give yourself away to me. And let me recycle your evil and turn it into good. That's our story. That's our song. Praising our Savior all the day long. The closer we get to God, the more we see the minuteness of our sins. And a person who is self-righteous doesn't really see himself or herself right. When you really see God, you see how unworthy you are, and yet God has made you worthy for service in his kingdom. Five women are in the genealogy of Jesus, and four of them are women of great embarrassment and ill repute. There's Bathsheba. She's not even named in Matthew chapter 1. She is uh, the one who is the wife of Uriah. Not even named, but she's in, she's in the genealogy of Jesus. There's Tamar. This really would fit real good for our Jerry Springer show because Tamar has sex with her father-in-law. And her father-in-law, Judah, impregnates her. And as a result of that, the father-in-law is the father of his own grandchild. And uh, the son who is born uh, from Tamar, Perez, comes through here along with Zerah. But Perez, and Perez is in the family line of Jesus. All of that. From that messiness. You see, you can't spell Messiah without mess. It's M-E-S-S-I-A-H. And the Messiah has come to deliver us from our mess. Anybody here ever been in mess? Mmm. Anybody? I mean, be honest. You ever been in mess? Do you realize that God had to take you from mess? Bring you up? Oh, I know nobody knows about it, but it's still mess. You were born in mess. Born in sin, shape of iniquity. You got a bad start. But look what God has done and has cleaned you up so that you can go back and tell other people, I serve a Messiah who can deliver you from your mess. And as Lucy, uh, Mary and Tolliver Roberts, the mother of Robin Roberts, anchor woman of Good Morning America, would say, make your mess your message so that you can tell others what God can do. Let me, let me, let me. The other two women are Ruth, out of the genealogy of Jesus. She's there. Mary is there, not because she is um, um, uh, the immaculate Mary. Um, no, no, she, she had to be saved just like you and I. Nothing special about her in terms of her being sinless. She is at the prayer meeting with the, with the 120, 
in Acts chapter 1 because she needs the Holy Spirit. Even though the one who was born of her is of the Holy Spirit, she needs the Holy Spirit to be in her because he goes back to send the Holy Spirit and says that the Spirit will not come until I leave. No, she is a sinner who needed to be saved and needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit herself. Bathsheba, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, all of them in the genealogy of Jesus. And move up to Hebrews 11 and 31, winding it down, where Rahab is in the hall of fame of faith. For the text says, by faith, Rahab welcomed the spies and hid them and, when, and was not destroyed along with the rest of the citizens of the city of Jericho. Rahab's faith saved her. But according to James chapter 2, verse 25, the Bible says that Rahab was justified by her works. Mm. Contradiction, right? Hebrews eleven thirty one. by faith, Rahab is saved. James 2, 25, by works, Rahab is justified. Paul? James? Is this an antithesis? Are they oppositional? No. It's a sequence. We are saved by faith, which follows faith works. In other words, I get saved because of my faith in Jesus. And I'm saved by faith alone through grace alone, but grace is never alone. It's always accompanied by works. And I don't work to be saved. I work because I am saved. I'm not working for salvation. I'm working from salvation. I can't help but to work. And therefore, no one should have to draft you to serve. No one should have to beg you to serve. No one should have to, to curse you to volunteer. Because you've been saved, you work. Because you just can't help yourself. He's done so much for me. I can't help but to praise his name and to serve his cause. Well, they marched around the wall. God has been so patient. Thank God for patience. Think about it. Had the spies not gone to Jericho, Rahab would have never had the opportunity to encounter them, would have never been given the guarantee that if she and all of those she gathered in her house would be spared, had the spy has not been sent. If there was an instant attack on Jericho, and then time is given for her to do some evangelism, the spies escape through the windows, stay in the hills for three days, finally get to the, the camp to tell Joshua what they had seen. Three days it takes for them eventually to start crossing over, and there are about a million and a half people. How long does it take a million and a half people to cross uh, the Jordan River? And then they stay in the camp, and they're told to... Let the men be circumcised. They're circumcised. It takes time for them to be healed. And then they march around the wall one time for six days. That's six days. Then on the seventh day, march around seven times. And then the walls fall down. You're talking about two weeks or more. He had two weeks to gather people to come to her home. Because God, as Peter says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is patient. 
long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Not any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some of us are sitting here right now, and we can reflect on the fact that God gave us time to respond to the gospel. What if God had called us home before we heard the gospel or responded to the gospel? Mm. But he was patient. You and I escaped certain situations, not because we were careful, but because of God's grace. God has been patient. And the most difficult, and evidently, she had to be a very good evangelist because she gathered her mother, father, sisters, and brothers, and others in her house. And the most difficult people to evangelize are those who are members of your own family. She did better than Lot did. Abraham or Noah was only able to get his wife his three sons and their wives, and Lot was only able to get his wife to come, as well as his daughters, and his wife, of course, turned and became a monumental, perpetual pillar of salt, and the son-in-law stayed. They died in Paris in Sodom. She is able to evangelize her own people. If there are people in our homes, that's our Jerusalem, that need the gospel, we need to tell them, come into the house. Come from danger. Come from perdition. And enter the place of safety, which is only behind the scarlet cord, which represents the blood of the crucified one. God had been faithful. Let me, let me close on this note. Six days the children of Israel spend marching around the wall. God has a certain alignment. He wanted the militia to march, wanted the priests bearing the shofar, the trumpets to blow, wanted the priests who carried the arks, ark of the covenant of God, which represented the presence of God in the midst of his people, and then finally the rear guard. So you had the militia, the advance guard, and the militia, the rear guard, and then you had the priests blowing the shofar or the trumpets and the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which represented that God was in the midst. And they marched around the walls one time for six days. And on the seventh day, they marched around seven times. And verse 20 says that when that seventh revolution was completed, that the people were to shout and the shofar, the trumpets were to blow. And verse 20 said, and the walls fell down flat, flat. According to Josephus, one of the uh, ancient uh, Jewish historians, the walls of Jericho were so thick and so wide that two chariots could ride side by side without falling over. And when you read Joshua chapter 2, verse 15, it says that Rahab's house was built inside of the wall. If the walls fell down flat, how was Rahab and her family spared? If the walls, you know what flat is? Flat don't mean, doesn't mean five or six stones tall. Flat means flat. Instead, flat. It was total catastrophic destruction. Flat. So that it was not accidental. It was not some kind of earthquake. It was the hand of God. How in the world did Rahab's house stay intact? When the wall fell down flat. Now, I don't want to use sanctified imagination. I just want to say this. The only way that could have happened 
was that God had to do some selective demolition. Because the promise had been made that Rahab and her family, as long as they were in the house with the scarlet cord dangling, that they would be spared. I just think that God reserved that section of the wall where Rahab and her family were in the house in order to keep his name from being um, uh, lord and desecrated. He had to be a God that was trustworthy. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. It can't happen. How can you have a wall fall down flat in just one section where a house is built still standing? Uh, some people have trouble with that when it comes to Noah or to uh, Jonah. Uh, how can Jonah um, spend uh, three days and three nights in an underwater hotel, namely a fish, no ventilation, uh, the, the heavy acidic, acidic acid that's there? Where's it going to get oxygen from and all that? Three days, three nights. The Bible says God made the fish. And if God made the fish, God can equip the fish with what the fish needs in order to keep Jonah alive. I don't have a problem with that. Somebody said, well, you know, I, I can't believe that God created the world. It had to evolve through an evolutionary process. Because... The sun and the moon are not created until the fourth day. And on the very first day, God said, let there be light. How are you going to have light on the first day when you don't have the sun until the fourth day? Hmm. That don't happen. Because it's the sun that gives the light and the moon that reflects the light of the sun. But God said, let there be light. And in the eschaton, in the future, the Bible says... That there shall be light, but there will not be any sun. And there won't be any nights. Because God is the light of the city. He doesn't need elements. He doesn't ob uh, operate by science. God spared Rahab and her family in a miraculous way. And what amazes me is not that God spared Rahab and her family. And kept this section of the wall standing. That's, that's not it for me. What astounds me is how I'm still standing and everything else around me is falling. Some of you are still standing right now. And everything else has collapsed and fallen. Some of your dearest friends have left you. Relational risks have been deep. Health has broken down. And other people are waiting for you to collapse. And you're still standing. Because God is able to enable you to stand when the rest of the wall has fallen. Ah, because he is that kind. Anybody understand what I'm talking about? He's that kind of God. Let things fall. Let friends go. As long as I got King Jesus, I don't need nobody else. He is able to keep you. Well, uh, this, 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 there's no end to this, but let me just, let me just say, say this. Let me say this. Because I'm at home. I can do that. I love you too. Rahab and her family is spared. And I think that Rahab was not only spared, but she was changed. I can't prove it. I think that after she's spared, I don't think that she went back into the business of prostitution. I just like to think that since God spared her life and changed her life, 
that she resigned from prostitution. Because when God saves us, brothers and sisters, he turns us from our wayward ways and gives us a new destination and a new direction. I've ceased from my wandering and going astray since Jesus came into my heart. And my sins, which were many, are all washed away since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart, floods of joy, oh, my soul, like the sea billows roll. Since Jesus came into my heart, people are looking at us and they want to see a change. And I want you to know that when you experience real salvation, you are maturing. No, you're not perfect, but God is moving you not to a point where you become sinless now, but that you sin less. And your desire for sin uh, decreases and is reduced. And you really love him. Your life changes. I think also Rahab had to become a worshiper. I can't imagine a person being spared like she and her family were without giving God praise and worshiping God. And when we come to church, I think that God wants the total person. I don't think that we ought to give all of our high fives and all of our hoots and hollers down at the Great American Ballpark or at Nippert Stadium or at some basketball game. I think when we come to church, it's all right to clap your hand because God is good. It's all right to wave your hand if you're going to do the wave down at the Great American Ballpark. Let's do the wave at church and talk about what God has done. We say, well, that's a fanatic. Well, it's easier to cool off a fanatic than to warm up a corpse. And you ought to get to the place where you don't care what anybody has said. Because God has been good to you. And you didn't come to be a secret worshiper. You didn't come to be an individual who goes to heaven by the back alleys. You want to be a public witness. You want to let people know that I worship God in song. I think Rahab got to the place where she becomes an instrument to show that the church has an ecclesiological facelift. What I mean by that is that the church is no longer composed of just Jews. Rahab is a Gentile. And in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor free. This church is the kind of church that I've said it for years. Uh, that has the potential to really look like the kingdom of God. Whites, blacks, Asians, Hispanics, Native Americans. We better get used to it because heaven is not going to have five racial sections, five racial suburbs. Blacks over here, whites over here, reds over here, browns over here, yellows over here. No, according to Revelation 7 and 9, when that day shall come, people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue will join together in loud acclamation, glory to our God in the highest. I think Rahab is saying, not only will there be an ecclesiology, an ecclesiological facelift, but eschatologically, in terms of the future, things will be different. Rahab is now going a different way. God has saved her. God has justified her. And God is using her for his own glory. And now she has a reason 
to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks be to God that we have a future. And uh, that future is now. For as long as we have breath in our bodies, then we ought to give Him praise for all He's done for us. Yes, mountains may crumble and seas may boil. Oh, yeah, friends may leave and friends may come. But God is still faithful. And because He's faithful, I'm just going to tell the story about how He's brought me over. I'm going to tell the story about how He saved me and how He sustained me and how He's delivering me and how He is sanctifying me and how He is purifying me. Because one of these days, when it's all over, we'll bow down at His feet and give Him glory. You think you have in church here. Wait till my feet strike Zion and I bow down at the feet of the Lamb. I'm going to say glory to God for His salvation, for His justification, for His perseverance, for His purging, for His reconciliation, for His adoption, because He's worthy. He's worthy. He is worthy. God puts an aura for our redemption. And as a result of that, we need to proclaim the story so that the church becomes a safe place for everybody. Come, ye disconsolate. Come, pimps. Come, pushers. Come, thieves. Because every one of us is an ex-something. God invites us to come. That's the story of our redemption. And that's why we worship and praise Him. As we stand, the invitation is extended. Not just for salvation. Not just for becoming a part of this faith family. But the altar is open even for those who feel a holy nudge to pray.